Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Dear Lord, words, so many words, oftentimes so little power. Dear God, please work in our hearts. Please transform our lives for the glory and honor of your Son. Make his bride beautiful for him. Expose both sin or righteousness. Convict, encourage, exhort, but most of all, Lord, Transform. Please, dear God, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest evidences of conversion is apathy. Let me say that again. One of the greatest evidences of conversion is apathy. And what do I mean? I said it that way to get your attention. Now let me explain. It is the recognition of apathy. It is having such a high view of Jesus Christ and such a high view of what he has done for you that when you look at your heart, no matter how much it burns for him, you realize the burning is not enough. That if we had a thousand lives to lay down with the greatest amount of human zeal, he still deserves more. And in the end, we would have to bow our head and say, I have nothing but a dull mind, a tight spirit, and an apathetic heart. Now, why did I say it that way? I have walked with the Lord for many years and I see too much apathy, too little interest in Him compared to the grand theme that He is. I hate my apathy. I hate my disinterest. I hate my lack of zeal. I fight it. I fight it. A sinner has no such fight. A lost man has no such fight. An unconverted religious man, though extremely proper and respectable, has no such fight. He never looks at Christ really and sees him as he is. And he never laments his lack of apathy or his lack of of zeal. He laments his apathy. 
Are you proper? Are you dignified? Are you moral? Are you respectable? Well, all those things are fine, but they mean nothing if you do not lament the fact that you see Christ clearly and yet you do not give Him what He deserves. The true Christian will grow and grow and grow in their knowledge of the worthiness of Christ. They will grow and grow and grow in their understanding of how much He deserves. They will grow in their fight against sin and against apathy. And when everything is said and done at the end of their days, they will lean upon their staff and they will raise their hand. And like dear Martin Lloyd-Jones, they will say over and over and over again, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Are you content with who you are? Are you content with what you give Christ? Then you should be very, very, very afraid. It is not well with you. It is not well with you. But now I want to change gears for a moment and I want to talk to the genuine believer. And I want to say to you, many times, when a man gets in a pulpit, especially a man who is maybe passionate or sometimes just emotional, we will look to that preacher and we'll see him in the pulpit burning with zeal. We'll see him say hi and great things. And then we'll look at the preacher and we'll look at ourselves and say, there's such a distance between us. But what you need to understand is that we all have to fight. Even those of us who preach with strength or zeal or emotion. That our battle is just as real as yours and you should not become discouraged. You should look at no man and say, what a great saint. I can never attain to where he is. You need to understand there's only one hero in this story. It is our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Everyone else of this lineage is a failure. Only one has triumphed. Only one son of Adam has overcome. And it is Jesus Christ. And unto Him be all glory and honor and praise. And to no one else. No one else. No one else. Paul says here, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He is asking for believers to turn over the most precious item they possess. Satan is a liar, and even when he speaks the truth, it is presented in a twisted way so as to deceive. But there are times he says things that are true. Job, for example. Take away everything. Job stands fast. Satan says, oh, but touch his body. Touch his body. That's the true test. And although that deceiver is a deceiver, what he said in this point was true, even though he was manipulating it to say something false. 
You can take away everything that belongs to a man, but touch his body. Ask him for his body. That's a whole nother story, a whole nother level of dedication. And yet Paul the Apostle here uses the Greek word soma. He's talking about body. He's talking about presenting yourself entirely as a sacrifice. And this is not just a call for a missionary or a minister, but for a carpenter and a plumber and a doctor and a lawyer and a housewife and a student and even a young child if that young child calls upon the name of the Lord. This is for all of us. All of us who claim to bear the label and the brand of Christ are called upon not to give a little, not to give something, but to give us. To give us, man. Are you listening to me? This is not just correct doctrine. This is command. You should be shaken to your root right now to think about the awesome things I have just set before you. You are called to offer everything you have to Christ. I can't water this down. I can't pretend it's just some class on doctrine. This is real. This is what we're called to do. And you're not hearing correctly if you're not troubled at this moment in your conscience. We are called to a high calling of offering everything we have to Christ, to God. And that is why Paul says, I urge you, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you. After doctrine is set forth, after truth is laid before the people, they must not only hear, they must be urged, they must be begged, they must be implored. Now eat, eat, and then with that, run, run. It is not enough to hear, it is not enough to think. Because we are called upon to do. To act. Are you complacent? Are you hearing me? These are terrible words coming forth from this pulpit this morning. These are words calling for you to lay down your life or whatever aspect of your life has not been laid down. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. You belong to Christ. Blood was paid for you. The very blood of God. What will you do? It's very hard for me to tolerate preachers who see preaching as just a trans, uh, just a communication of information. It's not preaching. When Paul lays down theology, he always follows it with exhortation. He says, "I urge you. I plead with you. Why? He really loved the people." He loved them. He knew what was best for them. To hoard grace in their hearts. Like a miser hoards pennies to do nothing with the grace God has given you. It's a travesty. 
And so he pleads with the people, I beseech you, I beseech you to do what? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In many evangelical traditions and Baptist traditions, there is a, a, a very dangerous practice of, of, an, of an altar call followed with music and followed with pleading in which almost every week someone is coming forward week after week to dedicate or rededicate their life. This is not what this text is talking about. This is aorist tense. This is a prophetic call to once in your life, for once in your life, as the prophet said, stop limping between two opinions. If Baal is God, then serve him. But if God is God, for once in your life, stop, think, act, deliver yourself over to Him. That's what He's saying. That's what He's saying and you can't escape it. If I could stand at every door, if I could multiply my body and stand at every window and not let you out of this building, I would do so. If I could grab you by the nape and pull you close to me and look you straight in the eye, I would beg you, stop limping between two opinions. If the world is God, then go to the world. If God is God, then go to Him. That's what Paul is saying. And he's not urging because he's angry. He's pleading because he loves. He knows eternal realities. Heaven, hell, life, death, eternity. And you there so confident. Hanging on the thread of a tiny spider. Your life is a moment. What will you do? I no longer ask merely what do you think. So tired of words. So tired of ideology. They are important, but they are the means and they are not the end. The end is a life delivered over to Christ. Delivered to Him. You young person, be very, very careful of your idle words. That you look in the mirror and you see yourself mature. Then be judged as someone mature. And hear the same call that I'm giving to your parents. There's no escape. If God is God, then give yourself to God. And if, you're, if this world is your God, then run. But just stop playing. Stop walking between two opinions. Now... He says, a living sacrifice. There is nothing, there is nothing secular in the Christian life. Not anymore. Even laughter is to be holy. Even the pots and pans of your house are to be called holy. There's nothing sacred or secular. It's all sacred. All of it. All of it. I am not born out of nobility, nor was I raised in it. Not even Christian nobility. Spent so much of my life in jungles and mountains. And as I get older, I see so much of me that needs to be changed. 
Almost like a wild donkey of a man that needs to be subdued. After all these years, I look at so much of Scripture and I realize how little of me is conformed to it. Oh, I'll die for him. I'll preach to an oncoming train. But am I conformed to him? Am I conformed to him? I'm so tired, not in your tradition. Yours is a very old tradition, and you know what you say when you say it. But I am so tired in evangelicalism, hearing the word reformed, 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 because they don't really know what it means. It's not that you've adopted some academic understanding of Calvin's view of soteriology. It wasn't what the Reformation was about. What was the Reformation truly about? Submitting every aspect of our lives to God. That's what it was about. I have told Reformed groups, I know Arminians that are more Reformed than you are. Why did I say that? Well, you're not Reformed because you believe a certain doctrine about soteriology. Are you Reformed in your marriage? Are you seeking to conform your marriage to Scripture? Are you seeking to conform your thought life to Scripture? He says your whole body. Are you seeking to conform your mind, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hands, your feet to Scripture? You see... That's what it means to be reformed. To look at Scripture. To look at ourselves, every aspect of our life, and then to submit that life unto God as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, from where comes the passion I'll say it another way, the drive, or use a biblical term, the perseverance. I know that so many of you are like me, that you, you know more than you actually do, that you have higher thoughts of Christ than you do responses to that high knowledge. The question is, when we look at church history, why is it that some men and women seem to excel in this area? You know, when I pray for a baby, when someone says, pray for my baby, do you know what I always pray? I always pray the same thing. I ask one thing for that child, that the child would have an unusual I'm praying to the Father, and Father, that this child would have an unusual and extraordinary devotion to your son. To your son. That's all. That's all. I have chosen the best for that child. 
And as I look down through church history and I see people who have this unusual devotion for the Son, not just for Christianity, not for ministry, not even for heaven, but for the Son, I ask myself, how did they get there? How did they offer their life as a living sacrifice? How did they persevere? Because they're born of the same stock as I and as you. Is that not true? They're born of Adam. So they didn't start higher there. They were regenerated by the spirit of almighty God, but so was the least of us. We were regenerated by the same spirit. Now, we do acknowledge that there are different giftings and capacities. We, we know that. But never that has more regard with function and ministry. Never are we taught in Scripture that some have a greater capacity to love the Lord or to be devoted to the Lord than others. And so how is it that some people have such unusual devotion They'll not just die for Christ. They'll do something much more difficult. They'll live for Him. They'll live for Him. How? So we study all these great characters throughout church history. Those who've served in jungles. Those who've died on the mission field. Those who've been burned at the stake. Those who have ministered for 70 years. On and on. And we hear about these great men and these great women. And we look at them and we look at us. What makes them different? It's not them. It's not them. The answer to the source of any virtue that is found in a person. It cannot be believed by us that it came forth from that person. There has to be something else. I tell young people when they read biographies, be very, very careful, read them, but be very, very careful that you do not put men on the shelf alongside their books, that you do not raise them up too high. Even the greatest prophets and teachers in Scripture were men of like passion. Now, let me share with you something, just how wrong we are in our view of things. When we see a man when we see a man that loves his wife in an extraordinary manner. And I have. I have known men like that. And I want to be a man like that. But we see men who love their wives in an extraordinary manner. What do we always say? What an amazing man. What an amazing man. Do you realize that might not be the case at all? He might just be a normal man. Well, if he's not an amazing man, what makes him so passionate about his wife? She's an amazing woman. And that's the same way with biographies. We read biographies and we look and we go, what an amazing missionary, what an amazing preacher, what an amazing leader of an orphanage, what an amazing man or woman of prayer or hymn writer, what an amazing person. No, they're not amazing at all. Then what is it? 
They have an amazing God. But do they not have the same God that we do? Yes. Then what's the difference? Only one thing. They see more of that God than we do. Everything in the Christian life begins with the knowledge of God. His laws are sacred. His wisdom high and worthy to be studied. But above all knowledge. Above all knowledge is knowledge of the character of God. And that character of God is most revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the life of Christ, that character is most revealed, the only time it is revealed, in perfect harmony. All the attributes bound together in perfect unity and manifested that way is in the cross of Christ. Why do some people seem to have such a passion for God? They've just seen more of Him. They just have seen more of Him. That's the way it works in salvation. That's the way it works in sanctification. Just for a minute, uh, let's just move over for a second. A verse came to my mind that I think will be helpful to you. Look in 1 Thessalonians. Just for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. D. Edmund Hebert, I, one of the really wonderful exegete on this passage, is extremely helpful. In Greek, you need to understand, although we can't always press the point, in Greek, word order can be extremely important. Extremely important. And Hebert argues that this order of they turn to God from idols is very, very important. It doesn't say they turned from idols to God, but they turned to God from idols. You say, what's the difference? It wasn't that the pagan world was was sitting there in its temples, its pagan temples, disgusted with its idols. Now, are you hearing me? They were happy with their idols. Their idols conformed to them. They conformed to their idols. There was a unity. They had created the idols in their own image. They loved their gods. They were content So don't think that the pagans were sitting there in their temple philosophizing, going, oh, this can't be right, this can't be right, this can't be right. We hate this, we hate this, we wish something better would come along. That's not what's going on there. They are perfectly content with their idols until something happened. The true God was revealed to them through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment that true God was revealed to them, with the work and power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, they were disgusted now with their idols because in light of the beauty of God, they wanted nothing to do with the world. So many of you probably have just languished and said to yourself, oh, the world, the world has such a lover's hold on me, such a grip, I can't break free. I know I should. 
You do not win this battle so much by fighting against the world. You win the battle by looking unto God in Christ. And the more you see of God in Christ, the more the world becomes a disgusting, shriveled nothing. Worthy of no time. Worthy of not a thought. A vanity fair of stupidity and darkness. Now, let's talk about the sinner for a moment, an ontology. Here's what you need to understand, and this, to some of you, maybe should be concerning. Man is born with a radically depraved heart that hates God. And why does it hate God? Because God is good. Why would a man hate a good God? Because that man is evil. I found out that saying that man is a sinner no longer has much impact on my culture. So let's just use the word evil. Man is evil. In some preaching today, you'll hear preachers say, if only we could show the world Jesus, they would all be converted. That's not true, because Jesus showed the world Jesus and they killed him. In order for a person to be saved, their eyes, yes, must be open, but a far deeper work has to be done. Their God-hating heart has to be transformed recreated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when the eyes are open to the beauty of the gospel, the person runs to that gospel and runs to that Christ. Now here's where the Christian comes in. If you are Christian, the more you see of Christ, the more you will love Him. If you're an unconverted church member, the more you see of Christ, the more you will hate him. And so what does the truly converted person need? A greater and greater vision of Christ. And what happens? I I ask young people a lot of times, do you lament the fact that you do not love God as you ought to? Yes. Well, what will you do? Well, I try to read the Bible. I try to be obedient. I try to pray. I go to church. And then a lot of them will run to some conference somewhere where they get screwed up, wound up like a tiny toy soldier full of emotion and the worship and everything else. And then what do they do? After about three days, they wind down and they're back where they started from and they're just as disgusted with themselves even more than when they began. So here's a good question. How do we make ourselves more devoted to God as Christians? Another way of putting it, how do we make ourselves love God more. How do we do that? It seems there are so many basic questions in the Christian life that people aren't answering. 
Is not one of our greatest commands to love the Lord our God, the greatest, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it not true that when we look in the mirror, the thing we lament the most is that we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Then have we ever asked ourselves, well, how do we change this predicament? Do we go to a conference? Do we get all fired up? Do we listen to worship music all day long? Do we put Bible verses all over our house? None of that is wrong. But that's not going to work. Many of you have already tried that. So how do you grow in the love of God so that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice? Imagine for a moment that I was laying on the ground on my back with both hands firmly grasping my belt. And I was pulling with all my might. And you walked up to me and said, Brother Paul, what are, what are you doing? I said, well, isn't it obvious? I'm trying to get up. Now, if you studied physics, you would probably say, well, Brother Paul, in order to get up that way, you have to be acted upon by a force outside of yourself. You cannot pull yourself up by your belt or your bootstraps. A force greater than you that can over." power your weight and lift you something has to grab a hold of you something outside of you must pick you up okay it's the same way with growing in the love of god can you twist yourself up to love god more no then what do you do you need to be acted upon by an outside force. What is that outside force? A vision, a biblical vision, but a spirit taught. Biblical vision of the glory, the power, and the beauty, and the love, and the mercies of God. I love my wife now more than when I married her many, many years ago. Why? Why? There you go again. He's such a fine man. He loves his wife more now than when she was younger. He's such a fine fellow, isn't he? Remember I told you never to look there. Why do I love her more? Because I've seen more of her virtue. More of her faithfulness to me. More of her perseverance. More of her strength. So what is it? Am I a fine figure of a man? Or is it that I have a virtuous wife whose virtue has drawn affections out of my heart? You see, that's the way it is in growing with the love of God. The more you see, just like those Thessalonians, the more you see of God in Christ, if you are a believer, the more that vision of God in Christ will draw out 
your affections. Increase them. I hate to use a vulgar illustration, but if a man said to you, come over to my house, I want to give you a gift. You're thinking that he has a box of chocolates. You're happy to get that. And your affections are kindled for him with regard to his kindness for you. Then you come over to his house and you find he's adopted you and made you a co-heir of everything. At that moment, are not your affections increased? Your appreciation increased? Your desire to serve him, to bless him, to hold him in high esteem? The people who know their God will do great things. Not because they're self-willed. Not because they're strong. Stronger than you. No, it's just they know their God. They've seen more of him. And so the second part, verse 2, is not that difficult. Do not be conformed to this world. They don't want to be conformed to this world. The more you see of Christ, the less you want this stinking world. And everything that it can offer you. Now let's go back and I want to proof text some things of what I've said. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now notice the plural there. I believe personally, not the greatest Hebrew and Greek scholar, but I believe personally that this plural is a carryover from Paul being a Jew. Whenever, whenever a Jew wanted to enlarge something, like if there was a small body of water, it was water. If it was a larger body of water, it was waters. They used the plural. Greatness, the aspect of being multifaceted. And he's saying, I beseech you. He says, I'm telling you, I'm urging you to lay down your life. Well, Paul, why would anyone do that? By the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. That's where they're laid out. See, Paul has made a division here, just like he makes in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, what do we have? One of the greatest, if not the greatest, work of Paul with regard to everything the believer has become and possesses in Christ. Everything. You, you could spend your entire life exegeting only those three chapters and you would not reach the bottom of them. Eighty scholars, the best of all we have, could do it. And they'd not reach the bottom of those three chapters in discovering all the mercies and graces of God toward his people in Christ. But then Paul gets to chapter four, verse one, and he says, therefore. Just like here, therefore. Walk in a manner worthy of this. Of what you are and what you will become. Because of what he has done and who it is who has done it. Now walk this way. So what is he doing? He's presenting before the people everything that God has done for them in the person of Christ. And it is only then based on this. Now offer your life. 
He's doing the same thing in the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 3, the radical depravity of humanity and the just or righteous judgment of God leading to condemnation of the entire human race. Chapters 4 and 5, faith, justification through the work of God in Christ and brought unto us through believing in his name. God's ongoing work in justification, then gradually making a, trans, a transition into sanctification, six and seven and eight, telling us about, yes, this sanctification, although it's going slow, will one day be complete and you'll stand before him with great glory. A brother to the brother, the elder brother, Christ Conformed to his image. And then he goes back 9, 10, and 11 to talk about God's promises never fail. Look at his ancient people. Look at all those centuries that passed. And never one time did any word with regard to Israel fall to the ground undone. He is faithful. So Paul has laid out for us in the book of Romans the mercies of God in Christ once again. And now he says, now, based on this. Stop limping between two opinions. For once in your life, stop. And make a decision that will forever change the course of your life. Offer everything you are. Every talent. Every beat of the heart. Every rational thought to Christ. Who was it? Bernard, I think, who said any conversation where Christ is not the center is a useless thing. A useless thing in the mouth of a man. Every talent. Every breath. Oh, what a stewardship, brethren. In Peru, in the jungle, they have a saying, Tu vives porque la gratis. The only reason you're alive is because air is free. And the meaning is, you don't do anything with your life. But do you realize a man could take his life and found a country only in the next generation for that country to be destroyed? But you and I have been given a privilege of serving an eternal king who does not get voted out. A kingdom will never come to an end. Finally, there is something that death cannot steal from us. That sin cannot spoil and it was won for us by Christ, our only champion. And all we've been called to do is believe and walk in a manner worthy of it. Now, we're running out of time. I want to run over quickly to the other passage that was read. And I want to continue to emphasize this point. Second Corinthians chapter five. Paul says in verse eight, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we labor, whether present or absent, absent, we may be acceptable to him. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be acceptable to him. We may be pleasing to him. There is only one person that you have to please. Isn't that amazing? 
If only preachers could learn this. They don't even have to please their congregations. There is only one person you have to please. That is the King of glory. No one else. And Paul's great ambition was to be pleasing to him. In the calling that he had received to be pleasing. Now, he goes on. He's going to give us two lights here. One is a lesser light and one is a greater light. We could say one is the moon and one is the sun. One is pale, but it has substance. The other is bright as the midday sun. Paul gives us two motivations for being pleasing to Christ. Two motivations. Do you see the relationship between Romans here? What are those two motivations? Well, let's look at the moon. Let's look at the lesser light. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done. Whether it be good or bad. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This would be a fearful thing to say to a believer who was not fully grounded in the doctrine of justification. That our standing before God is in Christ and Christ alone. Not 99.99% Christ and 0.01% us. It is 99.999. No, 100% Christ. Yet at the same time, we have a stewardship. You say, yes, ministers of Christ have a stewardship. No, everyone in Christ has a stewardship. You have been given time a reasonable, rational brain, a body with at least a measure of health so that it can function. You have been put in a certain place. You have been given so many talents, resources beyond what most people in the world that I work with couldn't even imagine you have been given. What have you done with it? What have you done? Are you pretty? You'll grow old and you'll no longer be pretty. Are you strong? You'll be weak. Full of life? You will die. Rich? Cannot save your soul on that great day. Respected? By whom? Paul was not respected. Very few people respected Paul. God did. Some may truly need to wake up this morning. Stop playing. We will stand before Christ. I do not know how that will be. I do know that we are loved. 
immutably so. And I know that the first thing the believer sees when he walks into heaven will not be a scowl on Christ's face. Christ did not die so that the first thing we see when we walk into glory is Him disappointed with us. As a matter of fact, God will find more joy in seeing you than you probably in seeing Him. And yet, we will all stand before the judgment throne of Christ. Oh, to be good stewards. That word stewardship, 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 stewardship is so very important. So why should we live our lives for God? He sent His Son to die for us and we'll be held accountable with regard to not merely our response to the law. Oh, that would be enough. But we will be held accountable with regard to our response to the gospel. Oh, even more. We'll be held accountable to the fact that it was the Son who died that was given. What will you give in return? What is that worth to you that the Son was given? What does it matter to you? Something you do on Sunday? Is that what you give? At least you're not as wicked as the world? Does that give you reason for a pat on the back? Especially I look at some of you young men. Know this. You are raised in a culture that does not produce men. In your strength, young man, serve Christ. In your strength, serve Christ. In your strength, serve Christ. Because you'll be held accountable not only for your elder years, you'll be held accountable for your younger years. What are you doing with your time? So the lesser light of motivation is what? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now what is the greater light? The greater motivation. Verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. For the love of Christ constraineth us. And you say, oh yes, Paul's love for Christ was so great. There you go again. So man-centered. Do you honestly think that Paul is saying, I'm constrained by my great love for Christ? Honestly? The same man who wrote Romans 7? Was Paul's great motivation his great love for Christ? Is that what the genitive means here? No. Even Paul needed a stronger medicine than his love for Christ. Do you know what it was? Do you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about Christ's love for him. I am sure that Paul was not much different than any of us. He looked within 
and he found nothing worthy of what Christ actually deserved. Think about it. Even Paul the Apostle didn't know the tenth part, yea, the hundredth part, or the thousandth part of the glory that is Christ. And the little part that Paul saw, he knew his response was not sufficient. Christ deserves more, always more, always more. With our meager knowledge of the fact that Christ died for us, that in itself, that meager knowledge deserves so much greater devotion. What about the entire thing? What about if you could grow in your knowledge of what it meant for the Son of God to come in the likeness of sinful flesh? Meditate on that for about four months. What did it mean? What kind of humiliation was it? To be chased out of his own country and back to Egypt as a child. As though he himself were living under a curse. To be circumcised. He should have never bled or cried. to walk on this earth as a carpenter and then an itinerant teacher. This is God. The Son of God. Everything that God has ever done, He has done for His Son. Everything. And everything God has done, He has done through His Son. He created the world through His Son. He sustains the world through His Son. He reveals Himself through the Son. He will judge the world through the Son. Even the ancient rabbis said so. In their old literature, that everything was made for Messiah, yea, even the world. So when we look at Christ and we look at ourselves and our love for Him, that cannot be a great motivation. But when we view God's love for us in Christ, oh, what a motivation. Oh, what a motivation. Oh, what an impulse. But now let's look at that. There's a mixture of things, a potion, I guess you could say, and it must be mixed well for you to fully grasp this. You see, there are certain elements to this that you need to understand. First of all, have you never read, she loved much because she's been forgiven much? And how did she know that she had been forgiven much? because she knew how sinful she was. I was preaching one time in a place and afterwards a reporter came up to me and was absolutely furious. Furious. And he said, 
Why do you keep talking about sin? Why do you keep talking about sin? Why do you keep talking about sin? And I said, because I want you to love God. He said, what do you mean? I said, quoted the same verse. I said, sir, you do not love God because you do not know the greatness of his forgiveness because you have no idea how sinful you are. Do you honestly think that Paul went through Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 3 to talk a grand discourse about sin just to make everyone feel miserable? That was a means to something greater. Romans 12. You were this wicked, evil, this low. And then, see, this is the preacher's job. He takes you there to that dungeon, to that cesspool, and he shows you what you either are or were if you are a believer. Dead in your trespasses and sins. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, let me illustrate it for you. Imagine a sewer pit and you're down at the bottom of it, a dead, rotting corpse. And the sewer pit is that which has come forth from your own body. You're dead in a sewer pit created by you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins at the bottom, a dead, rotting corpse. And the fluid in which you float came out from you. Just as vile as you. That's you. And although I must be careful here and measure my words as Spurgeon said, on Calvary it's though Christ took a deep breath and plunged in that pit to pull you out. How can you not love Him? How can you not think of Him? You see, Paul said, when, when Paul says a prisoner of Jesus Christ, don't think of chains, at least not Roman ones. Oh, they were there. They, they weren't his prison. They weren't what constrained him. No. He was imprisoned by a vision of the love of God in Christ. I have my elders, the elders of my church asked me to preach several Wednesdays. And I was preaching and some people, because they heard of it, they came and they listened. And my pastor told me one day laughing, he said, a couple came up to me, they've been coming for like three weeks and they said, they looked at me and they said, can we ask you a question? I said, yes. I said, has Brother Paul changed? Is he compromised or... And they go, what? he said, he, my pastor told me, he goes, the moment they said that, I knew exactly where the conversation was going. And he said, well, why do you say that? Well, we've been here for three weeks and all that Paul has talked about is the immutable, infinite love of God for his people. That's it, just love, 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 love. And my pastor said, well, now you're seeing the church preacher and not the YouTube preacher. 
And I say that to tell you this, when I'm discipling, when I'm teaching, when, when I want, when I'm teaching men who could die tomorrow, and that is not a hyperbole, who could go to prison tomorrow, I want them to know one thing. For the new believer, I want them to know one thing. After someone is genuinely converted, my great concern for them is that they understand the infinite, immutable, indescribable love of God in Christ. Because when that grabs a hold of a heart, oh, you'll have no problem with the rest. The rest is just working out the details. Once you become a prisoner of the love of Christ, and where is that love most manifest? Look at this. Because we thus judge, verse 14, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. dead. To even look in the mouth of that thing called death leaves images that will rock the heart dead. We were dead, dying, and about to die, separated from God, so vile, so evil, that on the day of judgment, the last thing we would have heard when we took our first step through the door of hell is all creation standing to its feet and applauding God because God has rid the earth of us. Before a new heaven and a new earth can come, not only Satan has to be removed, we would have had to be Removed. One of the most, one of the saddest part of the Christmas carol by Dickens is when Scrooge comes upon a party and discovers someone has died, but at their death, the town has thrown a party. Who could be this vile, this wretch, this poor spirit that other men would celebrate his death. And then he's led between the crowd and he sees that it's him. That would have been you on the day of judgment. And yet he died for us. He took that upon himself. You could spend every ounce of your strength to try to Scratch the surface of those three hours on Calvary. But Spurgeon was right when he said, not even the archangel in heaven, the cherub, the mighty seraph, none of them, no one will ever understand the wrath of Almighty God and what Christ suffered in those three dark hours. Only the mind of God will ever fully comprehend the price that was paid to save a wretch like me. That, that, my dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ is our reason for perseverance, our reason for joy, and our reason for laying it down 
laying it down. After all these years, I tell my sons quite often, I have no regrets for that which I have given to Christ. I only have regrets with regard to what I have kept. I want to finish just by saying this. I believe in the providence of God, not only in salvation, not only in Scripture, but in my own time. I want to tell you as a church, out from this local body has grown many things. You, you stand here where there are schools and schools and schools of of your own making that God has raised up. There's book publishing, there's ministry, there's seminary, there's all these things. But I want to warn you about something. It's sometimes very dangerous to be in a biblical church because by being in a biblical church, you assume that you're a biblical person. A biblical church does not make you a biblical person. As a matter of fact, a biblical church will bring greater judgment upon an unbiblical person if they remain that way. So know that you are in a biblical church. That doesn't make you a biblical person. But it does make you more responsible than most in this country because truth is set before you. Oh, what will you do? I would hate to know that it would have been better off for some of you to never have set foot in this church on the Day of Judgment because you didn't respond to the truth that was preached and yet your stewardship was greater than most men because you were in this church. Another thing I would like to say is why do you think you were born at this time and place? And with all these ministries here, that are reaching out all over the world, and I know the world, and the needs thereof. And some of the men and people studying here will go back to some of the most key places on the entire planet with regard to the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. I tell people the same thing. I took this from William Carey. When he was going to India, he said, I will go down into the mine Let me say it this way. I will go down into the well. But you men have to hold the rope for me to go down. I say this. Missions is just very quite simple. Two things. You either go down into the well or you hold the rope for those who go down. But now listen to me. Either way, there will be scars on your hands. Now, members of this dear church, not to me, not physically, but maybe sometime today, sit alone on the side of your bed, turn over your hands, and see if there are any scars. The ministry, the ministries that are going on here have cost many people dearly. Why are you here? Where are the scars on your hands? How often have you thrown out your back holding the rope? Not just for missionaries, but seminaries and schools and publishing and 
all the things that are trying to be done here to impact the world. I sometimes think about Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. And you know, Spurgeon was amazing, wasn't he? But you know, I don't think about him. Oh, he's my hero. I think about all the people that nobody sees that got out the word from that church. How many people donated? How many people, those men who took shorthand of his sermons? You know, I always say Spurgeon preached that sermon once. Whoever took it down in shorthand preached it like 10,000 times. I think about Geneva and I think about Whitfield and I think about all the people that were around those ministries that were lay people and businessmen and carpenters and housewives. And yet those ministries, I mean, Geneva sent missionaries to Brazil. How is that accomplished? Not just or maybe even primarily by the leaders, but by the congregation that supported, that helped, that promoted, that worked. Where are the scars? Don't show me, but go home and just ask yourself, what does it cost me to advance the kingdom of heaven? And young person, I'm talking to you. What have I given of my life? What have I laid down of my body to advance the kingdom of heaven for the glory of Christ? Because we have one ambition that in all things to be pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Oh God, Nothing can be done except that which you have decreed. And then by your power, we're cast upon you. We ask you be gracious to your people for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name.